Welcome back to Nerdy Latinas podcast. This is Sabritas, and I'm here with my co-host, Short Latina. Hi, everyone. <laughs> and today we have an extraordinary guest with us here today. We have barrio journalist, editor, and chief, uh, Jackie Serrato. Thank you so much for the invitation. Hello, Jackie. Thank you so much for accepting our invitation. Um, as you know, this season is all about La Vida. And so we wanted to bring in an expert of the, of the neighborhood, someone who knows, <laughs> someone who knows a lot of people in the community and has collected various stories. And so before we get started, I gave a, a brief little intro, but Jackie, uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Jackie Serrato. I was born and raised in Little Village, uh, born on 32nd and Londell, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, then I lived in Cape Town um, my earlier years. And but I would say my most formative years were on 26th and Sawyer. Uh, I went to Chicago Public Schools, McCormick, Madero. But then I went to the IB program in Curie High School when it was just starting. I, I went off to college, uh, the first in my family, uh, the first in many generations of my family. And I, I went out of the city, out of state, because it made more sense financially. No other reason. I've never wanted to, to leave Chicago. Chicago is my wow. home. Um, and even though I was accepted to quite a few schools uh, in the Chicago area, it, it made more sense economically for me to, to leave. And so I went to uh, New York, upstate New York for college. And when I came back to Chicago, I uh, came back to work in Little Village and I continued to be in the neighborhood and focused on documenting the experiences of Little Village residents, but uh, beyond Little Village, um, other Mexicans and Latinx people in Chicago, particularly in the South Side. Wow, what a journey. I, I can't believe it was more affordable to go to school out of state. Yeah, um, perhaps it was like, you know, a combination of the grants that the school was offering me on top of the loans that I qualified for. But at the end of the day, even though the school that I went to, Colgate University, was more expensive than the other schools around here. Um, yeah still it, it ended up working out better for me wow. and so right now you're in the journalism industry and you talked about how um when you came back to la vida you started to record people's stories do you recall the first stories that you collected um and how your approach was back then versus um now yeah, so actually, I, I kind of became a writer when I when I was gone, when I was in, in New York. And I think a lot of it had to do with me just being homesick, uh, missing my family, missing uh, my neighborhood, uh, missing my friends and, uh, you know, the environment that that I was most familiar with. And I was in, in a in a part of New York that was not diverse at all. Mm -hmm. um, it was a lot of farmland, um, and I was with a lot of white and very wealthy students. Uh, so that's when I really, I guess, found myself, right? Sometimes you need to leave your, 
your comfort zone to really realize what you're about. Uh, and so, you know, I, I made a lot of really good friends, a lot of really good friends, um, Latinx friends, black friends, um, you know, multicultural friends. And, um, but, but even with, with, with their support, I was still feeling homesick. And, you know, I, I wanted progress for my community. And so I, I launched a, a Facebook page for La Villita, which is called La Villita Chicago, very straightforward. And um, it was just supposed to be a, a digital space where people could, you know, claim their, their block, they could, you know, be prideful about the school that they graduated from and, and the year in which they graduated. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of people leave Little Village uh, when they become homeowners, it was also a way for people to reconnect as, you know, as Mexicans are spreading throughout the city and into the suburbs and things like that. Um, so the, the page grew dramatically. Um, right now we're at over 100,000 followers on Facebook. And um, even though, you know, we don't, we, don't, we don't actually post as much as we used to in the, in the beginning because there are a lot of um, Latinx led uh, publications nowadays, at least digital publications or digital spaces for our people to express themselves. But I'm talking 10 years ago, you know, when that wasn't so common. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, we still couldn't see ourselves in local newspapers, um, you know, even, even broadcast news, uh, we, we would only come, come out within like very uh, defined parameters, like as immigrants, right? Or as gangbangers. Um, and I, I felt that the media in general didn't grasp um, everything that we were mm -hmm. and everything that we contributed to the city. Um, so while I was away at Colgate, I started this, you know, Facebook page and it grew. And uh, when I came back, I decided that, that I wanted to take, take that to the next level. Um, I, I've, never, uh, I've never made money off of the page. Um, and it's something that I, I do with other friends, other people from Little Village. So it's a, it's a collective effort. And uh, you know, we never looked at it as a business, simply as, a, as something that was needed as a community resource right, that people could turn to and depend on, um, especially in a time when the media wasn't uh, portraying us in the best way, um, or were, you know, at, at a time when our grievances weren't being listened to or heard. Um, I feel like we've, uh, we've made progress since 10 years ago. We have um, uh, more political representatives that um, at least say that they are, you know, about issues that we care about. Um, and there is more uh, Latinx people and Mexicans in the media, mm -hmm. uh, in white newsrooms, as, as well as uh, Spanish language media. So things are improving, you know, mm -hmm. um, things aren't what they were 10 years ago. And it seems like 10 years ago is so far away. And at the same time, it's not, you know, yeah. but uh, change can happen fast. I, I mean, now for our listeners, you're now editor in chief of Southside Weekly, which is a very um, known uh, 
digital and, and in print magazine. Well, not it's not a magazine. What would you call it? Like a journal? A, a journal. It's, it's yeah, it's technically an alternative weekly. It's, I mm -hmm. think it's what it's technically called, but it's it's a we could just call it the newspaper. Yeah, because <laughs> that's really what it feels like. Um, and, and it's it's so well researched and it's factual and um, I, I consider that my source of news because uh, it's not biased. It doesn't feel like it has a, a an agenda. You know what I mean? And you go, I mean, I wanna, I'm so curious in knowing like, how do you get to editor in chief knowing that, I mean, journalism is a very male space. You know, mm -hmm. I, I feel like, and even as a Latina, I sometimes, um, when I publish my work, it's like, you have to, you know, use your Spanglish in there or like really prove that you're very Latina and that's how you get published. And how do you get there where you maintain your identity and not sell your Latinidad and become editor-in-chief? That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a big question. And I don't know if I have like a direct answer, but it, it's been a difficult journey. Um, I spent many years broke, um, bouncing around because I, I really was, wasn't fully accepted in white newsrooms. Um, I had to fight for my stories, like really make a case for why we should be writing or covering a particular angle on a topic. Um, so yeah, I definitely faced resistance. And unfortunately there, there wasn't like really the role models for me to like, you know, go and ask someone to be a men my mentor or something like that. Um, and, but from the get-go, I knew that, you know, a place like Univision would not hire me. They were not going to hire me. Why? Right? Um, well, I, I understood that I didn't necessarily fit the prototype that they're looking for, uh, mm -hmm. or at, or at least that they were looking for, you know, a while back. Um, you know, most of the, of their anchors and, um, you know, main reporters, they are from Latin America who are here on, on, a, on a visa, right? Um, and they come well-educated. They don't necessarily, um, they didn't necessarily face the barriers or the experience of other immigrants here in Chicago. I'm sure there are exceptions. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, that, that's the way that I saw it. Like, they're not gonna hire me mm -hmm. because I'm a Mexican-American. I, I, I may not speak the Spanish that they are looking for. Mm. Right. Um, I may not fit the, you know, the, the physical frame that they're looking for. Um, mm. And I, I really wanted to cover our communities in a very authentic way. Um, you know, giving, um, I, I, don't, I don't like the saying, giving voice to the voiceless because everyone has a voice, mm -hmm. but giving space uh, for people to really express themselves um, and to really understand where they're coming from. Which, when you're part of a of a TV um, broadcast news outlet, you don't you don't even get the time to really get to know your 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 subjects, right? Which is what we call people that we interview. You don't really get to know your sources in depth or to really understand their plight. Um, you know, mm -hmm. simply because of logistics, because you have a certain number of minutes that that you're allowed to. Uh, to, to go on air, for example. Mm -hmm. So from the get-go, I just knew that it wasn't 
first of all, an environment that I would fit in necessarily or from the get-go. And, um, and that it also wasn't the format, the media format that would allow me to really get to understand people and, uh, and comment about their experiences. So yeah, early on, I canceled out Univision and, and Telemundo, right? Because I, at the time, wasn't speaking the, the Spanish that they were probably looking for. Um, and because their hiring practices showed that they hired people, you know, born in Latin America with an education in Latin America uh, with visas and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but then I also realized that getting into a, a white or a mainstream newsroom was also going to be a challenge given that I didn't go to journalism school, which is the path that you know, a lot of traditional journalists take. Um, you know, they make it a point to get through journalism school before they seek out a job in the media. So what I did was that, first of all, I just started uh, doing my own thing for a while. A aside from La Vita page on Facebook, I also bought myself an audio recorder. I bought my myself a camera and I just started recording people's voices by asking them simple questions about their lives or what was happening around them. I also did a, a little bit of a video of, you know, local businesses that were opening up, um, you know, easy stuff, just so that I could get familiarized with how to handle a camera, how to handle equipment, how to talk people straight, you know, face to face and uh, approach them with a question. So I kind of developed those skills on my own. Uh, and then I started to apply for free internships, fellowships, workshops, trainings, things that were free or that, or that were low cost. Um, and I managed to get into like a storytelling training with Vocalo, right? Which is a, it's, it's a, a station that is affiliated with WBZ or Chicago's public radio. Um, I, I got a fellowship with a Northwestern um, journalism group that was trying to do like a journalism with a social justice lens. And uh, I, I wrote a really big piece on, on little village gangs and how they function. And I kind of broke the myth that, um, you know, that El Chapo was ordering, um, you know, gang retaliations or gang shootings in Little Village. Mm. Um, I, I really try to, you know, dig up, dig into a lot of these themes, gangs, drugs, um, because not because they're sensational, but because uh, dominant media really likes to use those sensationalist topics to drive a narrative about our community as, you know, criminal mm -hmm. or illegal or foreign um, or folkloric, you know, they, they have their own ideas about who we are. And I, I wanted to really get to understand those topics so that I can also speak to them based on my own experience and, and based on the experiences of, of others around me in the community. Okay. Um, so yeah, after I did, you know, fellowships, internships, trainings, um, I started freelancing, which is, you know, when, when you approach a, a publication or a news outlet and you're like, you know, this is happening, nobody's covering it, can I write about this? Um, and it's like a, it's, you know, it's like a contract-based uh, job or gig. 
and um, I started pitching to DNA Info, which who they were the precursor to Block Club Chicago. Mm. Uh huh. Okay. So um, I was doing Little Village based news about bus- businesses that were closing, businesses that were opening, mm. and uh, a little bit of politics as well. Mm-hmm. And um, once I was freelancing for them, I I kind of branched out. Uh, I started freelancing for WTTW, Channel 11. I also worked at OI, uh, which is OI newspaper, which was um, a Spanish language paper owned by the Chicago Tribune, but it has since been shuttered. It it no longer exists. And uh, I've also worked for the Chicago Reporter and a couple of other places. Wow, that is an extensive history. And let me tell you, when stalking you on LinkedIn, I had to keep on scrolling and scrolling. I was like, where does this end? Oh my goodness. But um, we're actually going to take a break right now. Um, When we come back, we want to talk a little bit more about the common representations of La Vita, um, a little bit more, more in detail about the specific instance of Adam Adam Toledo and the importance of how how his story is told in um, in social media. So, and we'll be back. And we're back here with our wonderful guest, Jackie Serato. Jackie has shared with us how she became a journalist and how her livelihood in La Vita um, impacted her, her way into that career. Jackie was sharing with us how historically Little Village has had negative representations within the media. And so with that being said, most recently, there was the tragedy of Adam, Adam Toledo, Adam Toledo, um, who was shot and killed by a Chicago police officer on March 29th. With that came a lot, came a lot of mourning for the community. After residents in, in Chicago were informed about Adam's death, there was a column that was written by Eric Zorn. And this was a little bit of tea going around on Twitter on April 7th when this column was written because it, because personally, I feel it was super out of touch. And so I want Jackie, if you can please share with us a little bit of the chisme that was going on with this article and so that we can discuss a little bit more in detail about how how perspectives of of stories why perspectives of stories are important and specifically why it's important to have people within the community telling our stories versus outsiders so when uh, when Adam Toledo was shot and killed by police, um, it wasn't immediately revealed uh, what his age was um, or the circumstances of of the shooting. Uh, it had the the police department had only released to the media the information that it had been an armed confrontation, which is pretty much what the what the media 
uh, publishes. Uh, usually when there are stories around crime, um, the police department will provide uh, different media outlets with the quote unquote facts and uh, any other information that they have about the incident. And um, what media typically does is that they will just essentially publish what information that they're given, right? So from the get-go, the Chicago Police Department is trying to, um, you know, distort the facts um, or not be forthright with them. Uh, then that is easily perpetuated because the media, you know, sends out, diffuses this message. So, um, it, like I said, it took a few days for uh, both the family and the public to learn that um, the person who had been shot by police was 13 years old and that he had been shot in the chest. But because there was already this narrative of a quote unquote armed confrontation, which when you read that, you think, okay, there was like a, you know, um, like a, sh a shootout, um, you know, uh, two parties. Um, yeah. You know, shooting That's at each other. exactly what I was thinking when I read that. Yeah. So, you know, pe people, especially in our Mexican community who are, you know, they, they don't want to be considered criminals, given how we've been criminalized by the former president and historically by the media. You know, people wanted to wait before passing judgment and learning the facts. So uh, COPA is the agency that um, releases the footage whenever there is a, a police involved shooting. And they get this footage from body cameras that the Chicago police officers wear. And COPA has up to 60 days after the incident to release these videos to the public. Um, so there was a delay in, in those videos coming out. And in the meantime, there was a bunch of people like, you know, uh, speculating about what could have happened. And, and that included this columnist, Eric Zorn, who even though repeatedly he said in his piece that the facts weren't out yet, you know, that, that the facts, that, that we didn't know the facts, um, he was already saying, let's not romanticize children, let's not make him a martyr, right? Um, which um, came out extremely tone deaf. Um, you know, he obviously wasn't reading the room People were feeling um, upset, um, sad at the very least, that um, a child had been, you know, the victim of a of a police shooting. And, I mean, we we expect, uh, I think, our our police department to to yes to protect the community, but it if it involves children, we we definitely expect de-escalation, right? Um, we we expect a little bit. Uh, more empathy from police officers, um, or at the very least, you know, for people not to be killed and to for us to have our, our day in court. So, you know, it's not like the community is trying to justify, um, you know, uh, young people who are who, who are being who are finding gangs attractive and and could potentially join a gang. Um, you know, it, it's not that we're approving of that. But there, there is due process. And if somebody is found guilty of a crime or is being accused of a crime, you know, they deserve their day in court. And, um, you know, and they, they deserve a punishment that is proportional to the crime, which, which at this point, we don't even know 
if Adam shot the gun that was found on the site. Um, because, you know, prior to the incident, there were uh, reports of shots fired, right? Um, there, there were no, no victims from that report. So, so uh, we, we don't exactly know, you know, what Adam was doing prior to, to him getting shot. Uh, and I guess we'll never know. But we do have that footage of the police officer chasing after him, right? Um, clearly, this officer's life was not in danger because he was the one pursuing. This was uh, a 13-year-old kid who was, um, you know, skinny. And, you know, he, he, was, um, he looked shorter than the officer himself. Uh, so it's hard to say that you know, the officers, I, I would argue that the officer's life was not in danger. And mm -hmm. after the officer asked Adam to put up his hands, he did, his hands were empty. And, and the video clearly shows that, you know, his elbows are up, his hands are up, there is nothing in his hands. Um, and, and, and yet he was still shot. So even after we comply, um, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you know, a, a police officer will respect that or will value your life. Um, so when, when Eric Zorn came out with that column, people were obviously outraged, um, especially because, you know, a lot of people knew that he had shown some empathy for Kyle, um, what, what's his name? Um, Rittenhouse or whatever, Rittenhouse, or Ritten right, who's from another part of Illinois. And you know mm -hmm. he was carrying a rifle, and he actually shot at people and killed them. Um, he actually wrote a column about him, where he was showing a lot more empathy, and was giving him the the benefit of the doubt. So seeing the contrast and how, you know, a quote unquote progressive media person, um, you know how they view or portray a, a brown boy versus a white teenager. I mean, you could you could see the difference. There's definitely bias there. Um, so what we did at Southside Weekly was that we actually put out an entire issue about Adam um, in which community members submitted a couple of opinion pieces, op-eds, um, where they were criticizing Eric Zorn's um, column, but also offering the perspective of the community, you know, how our communities have been historically disinvested on there are very few programs, very few opportunities, very safe places for our youth to go to. Um, and I mean, that's one of the reasons why, you know, young kids find gangs attractive or, or welcoming because many times these kids are unsupervised, they don't have much to do, they're bored, uh, they wanna be somewhere with other people their age that look like them that understand their lived experience, um, you know, and that just evolves. My biggest point in, in bringing up this article was to talk about perspective. And with every writing piece, um, you know, regardless of how spectacular uh, the, you know, the, the, the source may be or the journalist may be, there's always some sort of bias that comes through within writing, right? And so, I kind of um, wanted to discuss, you know, you you talked a little bit about gangs, and I think this was a huge emphasis that was um, within the community talking about gangs, um, 
you know, gangs have a very negative portrayal um, within the community because they're seen they're seen as the source of violence of the community. And while they can be that, um, they while they can uh, contribute violence to the community. Um, there are, um, there's also adverse effects of, of gangs and uh, why, why people are attracted to, to them. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the history of, of gangs in Little Village so that our listeners are, um, are in tune with a little bit more about the gang situation in La Villita. Okay. I guess before I get into Little Village gangs, um, I would like to mention that the first gangs in Chicago were actually white. Um, you, it's it's well known that uh, Mayor Daley, who was in power for a long time, um, that he used to be in a gang in his youth. So you know, being in being in a gang is not actually illegal, right? Um, you know, we're free to associate ourselves with whoever we want, um, especially if it's around you know, your cultural or, or ethnic background, I think it, it only makes sense. I think that for, for, the, for the children of immigrants, uh, you know, they face uh, a lot of pressure in understanding who they are, understanding their identity. Uh, you know, let's just, you know, talk about Mexican-Americans, like, like, what are we doing over here in Chicago? It's such a Northern, you know, a, 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 it's a city in, in Northern United States, in the Midwest right so far away from where our parents and grandparents are are actually from so what are we what do we make of ourselves and um you know so in, in a very organic way you know young kids and and teenagers from the same geographical area come together right under their under their similar lived experience and as children they'll, they'll come up with you know with symbols with um you know other things to join the club you know i think that's that's very normal in, in any part of the world that, that you go to. Um, but gangs have become criminalized um, when it pertains to uh, Mexican, American, and Black youth um, specifically. And um, in the, within, the, within the Latinx community, uh, gangs in Chicago really began um, among the Puerto Ricans. Um, the area that right now is DePaul University campus was actually a Puerto Rican neighborhood. However, it, at some point it became gentrified. The university expanded. Now you, now you walk through there and there isn't a single indicator that Puerto Ricans used to live there, that working class Spanish speak, speaking people live there. Right now it's a playground for the rich. Um, but at, at some point, in the late 60s, early 70s, there were Puerto Rican youth with also Mexican youth because they were welcoming of, of Mexicans as well, who would just come together to play baseball, to go to the church dances, to do activities together, literally. Um, however, the police would find a way to criminalize these groups of young people. That's really all that it was. and. Um, one of those very important gangs, and I think they're important because um, they became politicized after a few years of, of, of being gang members. 
And and by the way, they, they didn't even call themselves gangs. They just call themselves clubs or sports teams or things like that. Uh, it, it really was a term that was imposed on them by the police department or the government, however you want to look at it. Um, so th these were the young lords. Um, you may have heard of them. A lot of people think that they started in New York, but they were a Chicago-based gang that started in, in Lincoln Park because these young, these brown youth were discriminated against by the other white kids that lived around them. At the time, they were like, you know, descendants of Irish and German descent. Um, I'm sorry, descendants of Irish and German people, um, all kinds of like different European groups. And because of their whiteness um, and their white privilege, they were able to blend into the mainstream culture. And they were able to become successful and integrate and all that. But brown youth uh, have never really had that same opportunity. And, and that applies for the black community as well. Black youths have always been lynched. They've been uh, killed, um, hurt, shot at, uh, jailed. So yeah, that, that was the Young Lords were a group that fought off gentrification before that. That was cool because nowadays it's cool to be anti-gentrification, but back then it wasn't even called that. It was called urban renewal. Uh, the city had this 50 year plan to tr quote unquote transform uh, neighborhoods that were predominantly black and brown. I mean, also white poor, but um, the, the, a lot of the poor white people still identified with the dominant culture. So yeah, there was this citywide, very deliberate plan to wipe out uh, the black and, and Latinx people from from the lakefront and the north side and from the downtown area. And that's, a, that's exactly what happened. That Puerto Rican community went to Humble Park. And if you're familiar with Humble Park, it's also very gentrified. So now we have a very small population of Puerto Ricans in, in Chicago. And my fear is that the same thing is gonna happen to Mexicans. So, so the whole gang concept was something that also flourished in, um, in Pilsen which was um, one, of the, one of the first Mexican communities in Chicago. It's now like a very hipsterized, um, you know, but still you can still see the, the Mexican immigrant uh, roots or culture in that neighborhood. But it's, it's very trendy right now. You know, it's the rents are going up. Mexicans are, are getting displaced. After the gangs became criminalized, jailed, killed, etc. Um, there were a lot of Latinos that went off to the Vietnam War, and they came back knowing a lot about guns. Uh, around the same time, heroin and other hard drugs became available in the neighborhoods. I don't know how, but they arrived to the neighborhoods. And, and that's when the, the, the concept of being politicized gangs really started to die off, right? Um, these young kids started to mess with guns, they started to mess with drugs. And, and that's where the quote unquote criminal element, um, uh, you know, pretty much uh, took over, you know, aspects of, of many gangs. And, and so that became true when, when we had gangs in Pilsen back in the 70s and, and the 80s, a lot of it was identity based. But also, on top of that, you, you also add the sale of drugs narcotics and you know other illegal activities. Um, that community has been, like I said, it's, it's being displaced. 
those gangs, we're, we're looking at the last vestiges of, of them, of what's left. And I think right now, the like a hotspot for gangs is, is Little Village. But it's also not new. Like we saw a lot of gang violence in the 90s, uh, primarily between two major gangs along 26th Street, uh, which are known as the, the two six, uh, who I heard they started off as like a baseball team and then evolved. And then the Latin Kings, the Latin Kings were also originally from, uh, from the north side around the Humboldt Park area, um, or probably closer to Lincoln Park. I'm, I'm not remembering at this at this moment. Uh, but you know, the Latin, we have the Latin Kings in, in, in Little Village as a result of the Latin Kings that formed in the north side, right? They just expanded or however you want to call it. So there's been this beef between two, two parts uh, of the community, the west side and the east side. And honestly, a lot of it is just based on historical conflict, um, you know, interpersonal beefs um, that eventually result in retaliation and it just never stops, you know? Um, uh, I, I don't. I don't believe that that drugs are a big component of what is driving the shootings. I don't believe other types of criminal activities are influencing, um, you know, the, the conflict between these youth. But but I do think that um, it's a symptom of um, a lot of discontent. Um, young people who need, who have needed to find a purpose because they couldn't find it elsewhere either through an educational opportunity or, or a good job or another life purpose, you know, and they just kind of get drawn into, into these groups um, where, where they find support, they find camaraderie. And, um, and, and I, I do think that it's, it just became like a, like a domino effect, you know, um, where, where uh, interpersonal, intracommunal, violence just kind of uh, went out of control, got out of control. And I, I do believe that a lot of Mexicans uh, and Mexican-Americans kind of have like a chip on their shoulder. Like we don't feel, we don't always feel like we belong, right? We're um, uh, very insecure collectively. A lot of it, of course, has to do with us being criminalized as immigrants, uh, but but in general, we're not made to feel like we're part of the larger culture. You know, we're we're not integrated into, like our history isn't integrated into, you know, the public school curriculum, for example. And if and if traditionally we've never seen ourselves in the media, we we just don't think highly of ourselves in general. Um, so if you have these these kids who are lost. Who have there's a proliferation of, of guns everywhere across the United States, but for some reason there's a lot of guns circulating in Chicago. So so it's like a toxic mix of you know kids who are lost, um, gangs. I mean guns that are easy to to access. Um, you know the discontent that I spoke of. You know there's a lot of anger, frustration due to you know historical trauma due to family trauma. And it's like, they all just kind of work together in a way that is um, uh, 
that it's harmful to ourselves, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I do think there, I do think that the city has bear some of the responsibility because they could be redirecting a lot of, a lot of their budget, a lot of their funds to communities like these. Um, to black and brown communities, but they choose to instead put funds in the police department in these communities. And I, I think um, the popularity of defund the police, this may seem radical, but it really isn't because what it's asking is for funds to be redirected from the police department to more productive and sustainable things like, you know, to, to CPS schools, to um, to community centers, to mental health clinics, to after-school programs, uh, etc. So, I think uh, you know, gang youth are just a reflection of of society. Um, and I think instead of of shunning them, of uh, you know, of wanting to jail them or kill them, we need to be working with them and finding a way to bring them into the fold. So they feel like they belong to society um, and that they feel like they're, they're an important part of society and that their lives matter. Definitely. Yeah, thank you for that, yeah, for that thank history. You. Because yeah, I, I, I did a lot into a few sentences. <laughs> no, yeah, and, and it was very informative. And um, even myself as a Chicago resident, I didn't know that history and I'm always trying to, you know, learn new things about the city and just trying to better understand the dynamics as to how we got to where we are right now. And so we are coming to a close. We wanna be very cognizant of your time, Jackie. And so we want to ask you, we ask all of our guests um, this question before they leave us, uh, what makes you nerdy? And before you answer, just so you know, um, we think of nerdy in broader context. And so um, we want to hear from you. What makes you nerdy? What's maybe something that you do that not everyone would potentially know about? <laughs> oh, well, I, I feel like being the editor of a newspaper is nerdy enough. <laughs> <laughs> you're right, you're right, you're right. <laughs> but, but I do like to watch a lot of documentaries, um, you know, on Netflix. And sometimes... It's about interests that would interest really no one in my family or none of my friends. Sometimes it's even like European history, which given how I feel about racism can really be angering. Um, but I, I try to take everything in because I, I feel like as you know, one way to understand who we are is to compare ourselves to the rest of the world. Like are our living conditions really normal? Like is, is this okay? Uh, are we doing this right? And, and how has, um, you know, how are other countries doing it? How are other cities doing it? Um, how were our ancestors doing it 500 years ago? Um, you know, I have these really big questions and sometimes the only way to understand like really complex things is to see how things have unfolded in, in other parts of the world or another point in history, another other point in time mm -hmm. and how we as humans have, have learned to deal with them. So, um, that's probably as nerdy as I can get. <laughs> You're definitely an inspiration for a lot of young uh, journalists. Um, and before you leave us, can you give junk journalists and writers some tips on how to 
create that space? Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, one of the ways that I got started before I was offered any opportunities to, to be in a newsroom or to write for a platform is that I, I, I got myself some equipment to start getting myself familiarized. So if you're an, somebody who wants to become a journalist or a media person, start by practicing with the actual formats you know that, that, that you wanna um, that you wanna pursue. So, because I I wasn't sure what what I wanted to focus on, I I did photography, I did video, I did um, audio recordings, I did a little bit of podcasting. I tried everything, and um, I it, it helped me define, you know what what aspects were my what aspects I was passionate about and what aspects were really not my thing. So, you know, one way to define what you really want to do is to just start practice, practicing, you know, put it into practice. The theory can come later, but, um, you know, start getting your hands dirty, start attending events, start attending community meetings, talking to people, asking them random questions. Just try to understand your environment would be a first step. But then uh, nowadays there are programs, thankfully, journalism programs that young people can, can join. Yolo Cali is one of them which is out of the Boys and Girls Club uh, in Little Village. That's very accessible. Uh, there's uh, another one called uh, Free Spirit Media, if I'm not mistaken, as well as a Free Street Media. And um, of course there's Southside Weekly. We, what, what makes us different than other papers is that uh, you know, pretty much anybody can write for the paper. So we're, we're accepting submissions year round you just have to be willing to get your work edited, which I understand is is not easy, right? Especially if if you're not feeling a hundred percent sure about your voice or or what it is that you're trying to say, right? It can be very daunting to have other people look at your work and you know and, and tell you or or advise you, right? But um, I, I also think sometimes that's the only way to grow to um, be able to face your shortcomings. Um, you know, and just keep practicing on, on, on improving them. So writing for Southside Weekly really does that for people. I've heard that, you know, after they, after they submit a piece and then they hear our feedback and, um, and they respond to the feedback, they're actually really happy with the published piece and they feel accomplished, which I think is, it's, it's a beautiful feeling. And, um, and I think it's the way to go if, if writing or, or media is what you want to do. Thank you so much, Jackie, for joining us. Yeah, thank you so, thank much. You so much. I think this, this is a cool podcast. Uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Nerdy Latinas Podcast. Please share us, review us, and send us a voice message. We'd love to hear from you. We'd also like to thank our guests and Madera Once for allowing us to use their beautiful music for this episode. Please join us in the next episode of Nerdy Latinas Podcast. <laughs>